Good morning. I'm going to invite you to stand as we begin asking the Lord to do what he wants to in this place today. And you're going to watch a quick video, and then we're going to do the end of welcome. So let's watch. You know, you can change a lot with just 46 characters. For example, you can change where you live. Or you can change your relationship status. Fellas, we do not recommend proposing via text message. You could also change your career, change your vehicle, or you could change just about anything. But maybe this week, you could use 46 characters to change someone's life. 
Think about it, pray about it, and use your 46 characters for a change. So who will you invite to Easter this week? I hope you have been praying about it, and we've been talking about it for a couple of weeks. Inside of your bulletin, there are two cards uh, available for you to be able to make that a little bit easier to walk across the street or next door or hand to a coworker uh, at your office or at school, um, wherever you might be. But I encourage you to, to do that this week. And uh, as we've been saying, we want to pray with you guys about who you're inviting. So I'm going to invite you to take out that green connection card inside of your bulletin this morning and uh, put that on the back of the card. If you would, write in that box that's on the back there who you're praying for, and we're going to get together as a staff. We do that each day, and we're going to pray along with you about those that you're going to be inviting to Easter. You can do that online as well. There's going to be a connect link there in the chat window as well. But let's all fill out those cards, and uh, you could do that while I'm talking with you this morning and uh, just telling you a little bit more about what's what we have here at Peckway Church. If you're a first-time guest as well, you can simply just take out your, your cell phone. Uh, you could do that at home as well or wherever you're at viewing uh, today or during the week. And you can text the word hello to 717-872-5679. Let me do that again. 717-872-5679. And just, uh, again, that word hello. And that just gives us a way to, to communicate with one another. Uh, we can chat back and forth. You can ask questions, anything that you might need to see. You know, is Peckway a good fit for you and your family. And if you have any questions, you can always go out to the uh, in the lobby there and to the welcome desk or connection desk there, and you can uh, ask questions there. There's some free material as well. Uh, there's a free book if you're a first-time guest that we'd love to place in your hands as well this morning. Uh, as we are talking here this morning, look in your bulletin. Uh, there's a couple of things I need to make. One correction we have for keywords today. If you're interested in child dedication, and we're going to put that on the screen, but you can just text the word dedicate uh, that you can sign up for de dedicating your child. So if you do dedication, that will not work uh, this morning, but just make that note there. Maybe scribble it in your bulletin if you want to, or just take out your phone and do that right now. And then you can also pre-register for Easter by just texting the word register, and uh, that way our children's ministry can get ready and be prepared for you guys next week. We are so excited about Easter and what we're going to be doing uh, and how we're going to celebrate the Lord's resurrection, and so I, I'm looking forward to, to doing that with you all next week. Well, let's turn our attention to what we're going to talk about today for the sermon. Um, as I was looking at the text and thinking about the things that we, we're going to look at the haves and then the have-nots, it's so easy to become envious sometimes, isn't it? Whenever we see people that um, things are going maybe well for them or they have the money to afford the things that they afford. And, uh, but we don't trust in money if we're Christians. We trust in God. And so when we, when we turn our attention to him and when we have an attitude, a heart um, that wants to please him, it's a lot easier to get through those things, through those struggles, through those trials. And so uh, I encourage you to have your notes ready today as we listen to the sermon, as we focus on, uh, on how we can, again, have that, that right attitude, that right heart, and how we can have God and depend on him to help us walk through those things. Well, I'm going to invite you to stand again for worship as we sing this song today that talks about the cross. And today we're celebrating Palm Sunday, right? But coming to Easter, we have this song to remind us of what Jesus did for us on the cross, how he willingly and freely gave his life for us.
Jesus, I was a prisoner, now I'm not. With your blood, you bought my freedom, oh, hallelujah, for the cross. And all my shame was met with mercy. Now your mercy will be my song and go the glory oh the power of the cross hallelujah thank you jesus i was a prisoner Your breath 
of our praise. Would you pray with me as we continue worshiping him this morning? God, thank you. Thank you for the breath in our lungs today, that we can shout praises to you, that we can sing from our hearts. Lord, we thank you for what you did on the cross for us. We're reminded of that today, of this week. Lord, the, the road you traveled, the sacrifice that you willingly gave your life for us, what an amazing and incredible thing that you did, Father. Lord, I pray for our hearts now that as we uh, come to this time of hearing your word, Lord, that you would uh, begin stirring within us, God, the hunger to hear what you say, Father, through your word. I pray for those uh, in this room, those who are online, uh, those who are viewing whenever during the week, Father, God, that Lord, as we hear your words, that you would change us, God, that you would break strongholds, that you would um, turn hearts towards you. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
And I just want to begin by saying good morning, and honestly, I don't know about you, but I think today as we celebrate Palm Sunday that the, the song that we just sang, the words that we just shared and, and gave voice to at least begins to approximate what was going on in the hearts of those men and women who stood outside Jerusalem shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That sense of gratitude, that sense of his recognition of his authority and power. And so today on Palm Sunday, what I want to do before I move into the message is I want on this day where we recognize the authority, the kingship, the leadership of Jesus in our lives, if we're a follower of Christ, is just take a moment and pray a prayer of installation, a prayer of blessing on Pastor Chris and his family. For in a very real sense, I want us to recognize today that his coming here, his being a part of the staff is ultimately recognition of the fact that he was led here by God, not by a personnel team, not by a pastor, but by God's leadership in his life. And we want to recognize that today. So I'm going to ask Chris and Stacy to come and join me here on the platform. And as they do, I want to just kind of say two things to you real quick. One, I want to encourage you to take time today or sometime the next week or the week after and just introduce yourself to Chris, Stacy, and the girls. Second, if you haven't already, pick up a copy of Family News, a printed copies out on the literature stand. Many of you received it in your inbox this Friday. But in that, in Family News this week, you'll read a little bit about a bio of who Chris is, what he comes, passion, his background, and, the, and a little bit about the family. And always good, for, if you're like me, there's a picture so you can begin to put a face and the name of the girls together. But what I want to write, do right now, and I know it's is a rule, you're not supposed to become between a husband and wife, but I want to stand between the two of you. And, and I want to pray for you. So will you pray with me, church? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we have said today on this Palm Sunday, this day where we recognize your authority, your leadership in your life, we want to recognize the authority by which you brought Chris and Stacy and the girls here. Father, we recognize that it is not ultimately the calling of a board, the calling of a personnel team, or even the calling of another pastor that brings someone like Chris to, to this church, but it was your calling upon his life. So we want to thank you for how you've gifted him, how you've called him, how you've shaped him, how the experience that you've given him to equip him for this moment, this moment to function and serve as our pastor of discipleship, our pastor of mission. Father, I pray that not only you will use those gifts and graces in his life to not only do ministry, but Father, in the words of Paul, that you would use him to equip the saints for works of ministry. And Father, I pray for Stacy and Emma and Anna that, Father, that you would work, that you would work through us and in us, in our hearts and through our words, our actions, that you would turn this congregation into their church family. I pray that you will help them develop friendships, that you will find for the girls mentors and encouragers in their lives, that you will help each of them Find a place not only that they can call a church home, but they can call it truly a family. They can find a place of ministry in which they're able to be the individuals you created them to be, to fulfill the purpose and the plan you have for their life. For Father, again, we acknowledge that on the day of Palm Sunday, your people, the people of God, the Israelites, recognized your authority. They recognized your power, but they missed your mission. And so, Father, I pray today in this time of installation that we would recognize that you have brought this family to this place, to Peckway Church, to fulfill not just the mission in general, the mission you have in the world to reconcile men and women and boys and girls to yourself, but the mission you have called us to together and corporately as Peckway Brethren in Christ Church. And we pray it in Jesus' name. We pray your blessing upon this family. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Again, I want to encourage you all to take an opportunity to get to know Chris and Stacy, Emma and Anna, and to make them feel welcome. But today, I want to just talk to you about, I hope, a title that maybe at least got your attention, because James is going to lead you and he's going to lead me headlong into what I believe is one of the greatest divides in all of human history, greatest divide in all the world. Because it existed when James first wrote this letter in the first century, and believe it or not, it still exists today in the 21st century. It has been present in every civilization that has ever existed. And this one divide, this great divide, has, I believe, single-handedly caused more hurt, more harm, more conflict, more wars, and more social problems than any other issue in the world, save sin. 
And if you're sitting here wondering, going, what in the world is Jerry talking about? What is the divide? Then let me just tell you, folks, I'm talking about the divide between the haves and the have-nots, between the rich and the poor. Now, I came across a, a, just really an article about a reporter who decided to find out for herself what it was like to try to get by without a college degree, without a car, without any money and savings, and without any, if you will, discernible, clear set of skills. And she really wanted to discover what it was like to, to live as the working poor in America today. And so what she found when she was able to work, she found herself having to work at things like being a waitress, being a hotel maid, cleaning houses, a nursing home maid, and of course, a Walmart associate. And because she could never amass enough money to put down a down payment for an apartment, she said she found herself compelled to living in low-cost, low-budget hotels or motels. And because those places did not provide stoves and refrigerators, she said, I couldn't prepare meals. And I couldn't refrigerate a meal even if I did so I could have it the next day. Instead, I found myself having to eat fast food or what I could warm up in her microwave at a convenience store. And because the job she was working when she could work, whether part-time or day jobs, never provided health care, she found herself going without medical care and even necessary prescriptions. And at the end of all that, she said, that is the life of the typical working poor in America today. And to add to that, let's just see if we could feel this and experience it at the level it really needs to be felt and experienced. The pre-taxed income for poverty income for a family of four in the U.S. today in 2022 is $26,500. $26,500 is the poverty line for a family of four. And today that number constitutes, represents 13.4% of the American population. And as significant as that is, folks, the reality is that's nothing compared to the poverty in other parts of the world. I'll give you just another stat that just amazed me this week, that in the world today, it is estimated that 700 million people live at what we would define as extreme poverty. And extreme poverty is living on less than $2 a day. Now, if you're like me, you go, I, I, I can't even fathom 700 million. So let me see if I can help you picture what that looks like. The population of the U.S. today is 334 million. So that's two times, greater than two times the American population or the number of people living in extreme poverty today on less than $2 a day. And you say, Jerry, why are you sharing that today? I'm sharing that today because that's exactly where James takes us head on when he talks to us about the haves and the have-nots, when he talks to us, in other words, about those of us who have money, and, and just about everyone sitting here today by the world standards, in fact, all of us sitting here today by the world standards, have money, and those who don't. And James starts in what his typical, you know, no pulls, punches, no hold, bar way, and he begins to talk beginning with the haves. In other words, those who have money. And I want you to listen. If you haven't taken out your outline, please do so. But let's pick up where we left off last week with James chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what he writes. And I just want to tell you, fasten your seatbelts, brace yourself, because this is pointed. This is hard-hitting. Here's what James writes. He says, look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver have become worthless. Now notice this, the very wealth you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. The treasure you have accumulated will stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment. For listen, the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay, the wages you have held back cry out against you. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Now, folks, I, I told you to fast your seatbelt because I don't know how you respond to that, but I don't know any better way to describe those words than heavy, emotionally, spiritually heavy. And here's the thing. James intended them that way. He meant for us to experience them that way. Because he is addressing, if you follow the context, follow what he was saying, he is addressing people who have made wealth or having wealth everything. And if that wasn't enough, they were using that wealth 
in opulent, self-indulgent ways. And as a result, if that wasn't bad enough, he says, you have made that wealth on the backs of men, women, and children who are working for little or absolutely nothing. And because of your mistreatment of these individuals, he says, it has caused the death of some of them. And no, he is not exaggerating. He is not, you know, he's not being overly dramatic. James is stating a fact. For in that day, it was common practice that if a poor person had a little bit of land, it was only a little bit of land, and a rich person decided he or she wanted it, typically he wanted it, they would just take the poor person to court. And they would, in our language, they would sue him for it. They would litigate against them. But again, in the language of our day, they didn't have the financial resources to fight it. And as a result, invariably, the poor person would lose the land and be thrown off the land. And folks, because of that, losing the land, and again, for all of us, we, you know, I, I care about my little parcel of land, folks, but if you took my land from me, my family would still be fed. We would still be able to have a roof over our head. But in that day, to lose your land, it meant when they were no longer to be able to raise crops or herds, they didn't have food. They didn't have a means to clothe themselves. They had no way to shelter themselves. So when a rich person stole a poor person's piece of land, it literally was signing their death sentence. It was ultimately, at best, making that person, his family, destitute. Now, if you're like me, you're hearing that and go, Jerry, you know what? I would never do that, and I believe that about you. I wouldn't do that. I don't know if any of us would describe ourselves or see ourselves as someone who is so hard-hearted, so callous, that we would treat someone else that way, that we would take what little they had in order to enrich ourselves. And I say that because the temptation then, when we come to a passage like this in the 20, 21st century, to say, it doesn't have any relevance to me. This passage doesn't apply, but I want to say to you, think again. Because the reality is that in this passage, James hints at two timeless truths that apply to each and every one of us. And here's the first timeless truth he gives us. That God has given you and me wealth. He has given us money in order that we might do good with it. That's, that's the first principle that James is alluding to. It's why he has worked up the way that is worked up. Because here's the reality, folks. Here's what we need to understand. Our money, your money, my money can buy us things. It can afford us things. It can even, if you will, protect us or help us rise above things. And so, for example, your money and my money can buy us clothes. It can keep us fed. It can keep a roof over our head. It can even give us a, a bed and a pillow. It can educate us. And when we're sick, it can heal us. But here's the thing that James brings home to his readers, and we need to have it brought home to us. He says that same money, that same wealth, can also be the cause of bringing God's great judgment, severe judgment, on our lives and not because we have money it's not because james is not saying having money is bad having wealth is bad he's not saying that because it's not bad what he's saying and why it could bring our judgment on us is he says because of what we fail to do with it to further god's mission in the world by helping others that's why he says take a look at it again he says this treasure you have accumulated will stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment in other words my failure to use my resources in a God-honoring way to show compassion for others can actually, as we saw last week, can be the basis for severe judgment in our lives. Now here again is a reality for those of us living in America, those of us living in Lancaster County. Most of us, all of us, to one degree or another, have the ability to earn money. Some of you sitting here today listening to me online have the ability to earn great sums of money. It's just your gifting. It's the way God's gifted you, shaped you, wired you. You have the ability to earn large sums of money. But wherever you and I land on that continuum, whether it's to make a little or we make a great deal, if we're wise, according to James, you and I will see our money, our wealth, as a God thing and not a me thing. And as a result, then, folks, we will recognize that, that we need to have this deep sense of responsibility about the money, about the wealth that we make, the money that we have, because we recognize in all of that that God expects something from us, that God expects us to not only, though he does, to not just use it to meet our needs and our family's needs, but also to use it to advance his kingdom, to advance his purposes in the world by caring for the least, by caring for the lost, 
and by caring for those who are forgotten, marginalized on society. But you know our temptation in America. I know my temptation in America. And that is to see the money I make as being all mine. And as a result, folks, the more we make, our tendency is the more we spend on ourselves. We buy bigger houses. We buy nicer cars. We go on more expensive trips. We, we possess slicker tech. And the reality is, that here's just the reality of where we can find ourselves with the fallen human nature. The tendency for any of us, the temptation for any of us, is the more we make, is the more we spend on ourselves. But the irony is that, again, for most of us, as our income goes up and our lifestyle goes up, our generosity to the mission of God and the things of God and others, percentage-wise, tends to go down. It tends to decrease. Tell you a true story. Back in 1902 in Kemmer, Wyoming. Why he chose Kemmer, Wyoming, I don't know. If you've ever been there, I have. It's a dot in the road. It's a dusty place. But in Kemmer, Wyoming, 19, 1902, James Cash Penny founded a business that ultimately became, and some of you are smiling at me, became known as J.C. Penny's, the chain store. And, and you need to understand this. You, otherwise, the rest of the story makes no sense. James Penny was a committed Christian. He grew up the son of a Baptist pastor. And so from the very beginning there in Kemmer, Wyoming, when he was making $10 a week right off the top, he gave God $1, 10% back through his local church because he understood through the Bible, through his father's teaching of the word, God's word, that that's what God required of his followers. Now you can imagine, those of you who recognize that, you realize it got a lot, J.C. Penny got a lot bigger than Kemmer, Wyoming. And as his business grew, so did his income. To the, to the point that literally his tithe, his 10% to God, now amounted to hundreds of thousands of dollars every year. And Penny candidly says in his own biography how at one point he thought about that and said, I'm going to have a talk with God about this. Now, I probably would have done the same thing. But he went to God and he said, God, we need to talk about this. My tithe, my giving, my 10% now is huge. It seems to be completely out of proportion. And he said he heard God in his spirit. He didn't hear an audible voice, but he heard God say to him in his spirit, clearly and very pointedly, in response, he said, okay, I'll be reasonable, J.C. I'll see to it that you go back to earning $10 a week so you only have to give a dollar a week. And Penny said, I never complained about my tithe again. Folks, that's the first truth, that God entrusts wealth, whatever it is, little or much, he entrusted us with the wealth, with the ability to make money, so that we can not only care for ourselves, but we can do good through it and with it. The second truth James brings up is that we must be just in our financial dealings. We must be just in our financial dealings. In other words, if, if, we, if we owe someone a salary, we need to pay it. And if we employ someone, then that salary needs to be fair. And if we're in a position of authority or power, then we need to exercise that authority and a power justly and rightly in a way that honors God. Now, having said that, I, I suspect some of you are thinking, Jerry, that doesn't apply to me either because no one works for me. I'm not an employer. I'm not a manager. I'm not a supervisor. And if you're thinking that, I want to just push back and say, I want you to think again about that. Have you ever gone to a restaurant? Probably many of us will go to a restaurant this afternoon. Think about that waiter or that waitress who's going to spend an hour serving you. For that hour when you're at the table, that man, that woman is working for you. They're employed by you. Do you have anyone that mows your lawn, shovels your snow, trims your shrubs, cuts your hair? What about the person who delivers your pizza? Do you hire babysitters? Here's my point. You already have gotten it, folks. The reality is all of us have the opportunity and I would say the responsibility to treat people justly when it comes to our payments to them, when they work, if you will, for us as an employee, whatever that might look like. Well, that's what James had to say to the, to the haves, to the people who had wealth. 
But what about the people on the other end of the spectrum, the people who are the have-nots? What does he have to say to them? Well, before we go there, let me just, let me say this, and let me recognize this, that most of us sitting here today have known a time in our life when we didn't have enough money, right? Most of us have lived, maybe you were a college student, maybe you grew up in, in a family that never had much. All of us have probably had a time in our life where we didn't have a job. All of us at one time or another probably have been in a position where we felt deprived or victimized because we either didn't have the power, we didn't have the means, or we didn't have the connections to advocate for ourselves in an unfair, unjust situation. Maybe you're there right now today. And as Pastor Scott said, if so, let us know about that. Let us pray with you. Let us do what we can as a church family to support you. But what for the rest of us does James have to say to us that's relevant to us today in this passage? Well, let's listen to what he writes next. He says, dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. In other words, what, what James is saying here is that, folks, the, the, the counsel he gives the poor, those without means, is to patiently persevere. He says, hang in there, keep going. Now, you and I know, or at least we could define roughly, you know, what patience is in the general sense, right? I mean, when, when I tell my kids when they were young to be patient in the back of the car, when they were at the store is what I said, you know, wait without complaining, right? Wait without griping. And, and that's a good, fair definition of patience, but that's a general sense of patience. And in no stretch of the imagination is James talking about patience in general here, because remember, he's talking to people literally without financial means who are living, you know, literally day by day, hand to mouth. And so he's talking to people, many of those people he was talking to, that was not only a fact of life for that moment, that was going to be a fact of life for the rest of their life. And think about it, folks. It's one thing for you and I to endure a challenge or a hardship for a season, for a short period of our lives, but it's a whole nother issue, isn't it? when it seems like that challenge, that hardship, is going to be a fact of life the rest of our life. Whether that's extended illness, childlessness, whatever it is, it, it's just, it, it, everything gets different when the hardship seems to be for an extended season or maybe for the rest of our lives. And so that's why James turns around and says to these folks, not just simply, you know, patiently persevere, but he says patiently persevere by doing this, by remembering the life to come. That's his first step of counsel. He says, remember the life to come. And again, as in so many times, James here is being shaped by Jesus' teaching because time and time again, Jesus told his followers, his disciples, to not so much focus on this life, but the life to come. And there are many, many reasons for that. But one of, the, one of the reasons relevant to what we're looking at today is because Jesus wanted his followers to understand that not all injustices, not all wrongs, not all hardships, not all suffering will be set right in this life. He said we need to understand that some of those injustices, many of those things that we suffer will only be set right in the life to come. Which is why John the Revelator, John the very last book of the Bible, describes heaven like this. He said, he, that is Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Nothing impure will ever enter it. So again, here's the principle, folks. Not all wrongs in this life will be made right in this life. Some of the wrongs, many of the wrongs, will only be made right in the life to come. And James, what he's communicating here is he's saying to his readers that that reality can and it should fill us with courage and hope and ultimately the grace that we need to patiently persevere that the difficulties, the hardships, and the injustices we're experiencing here and now. But James didn't stop there. He went on. He said, not only am I calling you, encouraging you, counseling you to patiently persevere by remembering the life to come, he says, I'm also encouraging you to patiently persevere by facing those hardships, those injustices, with a Christ-like attitude, with an attitude that resembles that of Jesus. 
For look at what he says in verse 9. He says, don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters. So again, follow the context, follow the logic. After James has began this passage, this section, by calling out the wealthy for exploiting the poor, he turns to the poor and he says, now guys, now ladies, now gentlemen, I want you to understand, don't grumble against those who exploit you. And the way you don't go there is by possessing an attitude, the attitude of Jesus. For James would have known that his Jewish Christian readers would have recognized that Isaiah was talking about Jesus when he wrote these words. Isaiah 53, 7 says he was beaten, he was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to the slaughter and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. But I want to go back to that verse for a second, verse 9, and I want to ask you a question. Did you notice who James identified as those who doing the exploitation? Let me read it again. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters. Do you understand what, what James is saying here, folks? What he's saying is, in essence, he's saying is the same people that he called on the carpet for exploiting the poor, he says, is sitting right beside those being exploited in the church. They were part of the same church family. See, how in the world is that possible? Well, folks, we need to understand when the Christian church started, its very beginning, it was this incredible coming together of, of rich and poor, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, Roman rulers and servants. And, and what happened, what Jesus created, what the church was to be, was in that moment, rich, poor, man, woman, servant, official, they all stood on level ground before the cross, before Jesus. And so what we need to understand is what's going on here, what James is reflecting, is that in the very first century, the very beginning of the church, it was ground zero for cultural revolution. And what James is doing here is trying to help these new Jewish believers, the rich, the poor, the officials, the servants. He was trying to help them, given their unique and various backgrounds, to become the community, the countercultural community that Jesus gave his life to create, that the Holy Spirit came to empower us to live. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. And I want us to go back to some of the things James wrote earlier that we've looked at earlier in this series. Take, for example... James chapter 2, verses 1 and 4. Listen to this in light of that reality. Dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Why would he write that except it was happening? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes, and that clearly was happening. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, what does this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? And then in chapter 4, what is causing the quarrels and fight among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. And then later on in that fourth chapter, don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. Don't criticize and judge each other. What right do you have to judge your neighbor? And then what we're looking at today, look here, you rich people. Hear the cries of the field worker whom you have cheated of their pay. The wages you've held back cry out against you. And then those who are being oppressed, he said, don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. Now, let me tell you why I share all that. Because I want us to see, I want us to sense, beyond a shadow of doubt, folks, that James's letter would have caused some real tension in the church that Sunday morning when it was read. But it was a good tension. And the reason it was a good tension, folks, it was the anvil on which authentic Christian community was being forged. And it was the reason that the Christian faith, the Christian community was catalyzed like wildfire to move throughout the Roman world. And the Roman world had never, ever seen anything like it. 
Because these first century Christians, these men and women that James is writing to, took to heart what James had to say about living and navigating this great divide. The separation of haves and have-nots. Which is why most scholars would estimate that in A.D. 150, there were approximately 40,000 Christians. But by A.D. the mid-300s, there were 30 million Christians. Now, those of you who know history know that in 313, Constantine made the, the Christian faith, you know, the, the, the official religion of Rome. But don't miss a deeper, more significant point. And that point is shared with us by a second century Christian writer made by the name of Tertullian, who makes this observation about the Roman world's response to these Christian communities that were springing up all over the place at that time in the first and the second and third century. And here's what he said. The Roman world's response to the Christian community was this. See how they love one another. See how they love one another. And so, folks, James ends this section of the letter by encouraging the poor men and women who truly were suffering, who were being treated unjustly and unfairly by, by some of their Christian brother and sister's employers. And so he writes these words, take the old prophets as your mentors. They put up with anything, went through everything, and never once quit, all the time honoring God. What a gift life is to those who stay the course. Isn't that a great line? What a gift life is to those who stay the course. You've heard, of course, of Job's staying power, and you know how God brought it all together for him at the end. And if you don't know how God did that, then I encourage you today, take some time, read the book of Job, at least peruse the book of Job, and get a sense how God, even in spite of all the difficulties, brought it to good in Job's life. And then James writes this, that's because God cares. Cares right down to the least and last detail. So you see what James is doing as he ends is he recognizes as the author of this letter, he recognizes that some of the people who are going to hear this letter read in the church some Sunday morning, he recognizes that some of the poor who are present are going to be thrilled. They're going to be elated because they recognize that their rich employer is sitting right next to them and James just told them to be fair and just with them, to treat them with respect and dignity. But he also knew, as a wise pastor, a discerning Christian, he also knew there would be many, many poor in that service who didn't have their rich employer sitting beside them and so would never hear his words of admonition, correction, and challenge to treat their employees with dignity and respect and to treat them with a just and fair wage. And James recognized that those poor men and women would have to go back to work tomorrow morning or maybe that afternoon and continue over and over again, maybe for the rest of their life, facing hardship and oppression at the hands of that employer. And so James says, I need you to understand. I want to remind you as he closes out this section that God cares about your pain. He cares about it, he says, right down to the smallest, most intimate detail in your life. And so what he's really saying is, so whether this in this life or next, what you need to understand, what you need to hope on, have courage about, is God will make those injustices right. He will settle, if you will, the score. He will settle the inequities, which means, the practical application, James says, that means this, that you don't have to become embittered, that you don't have to grumble, you don't have to complain, because in the end, God can be trusted. In the end, God will right the wrongs. But again, the overall theme of this section of letters is simply this. James is saying no matter which side of that divide you land on, no matter which side of the divide you find yourself on, James says there's a right way and there's a wrong way to navigate it. The right way, he says, is by honoring God and honoring others. He says the wrong way is to dishonor God and dishonor others. And so his challenge to us, his challenge to his readers and to us today is simply saying, if you're a follower of Jesus, a follower of our Lord and Savior, then manage your wealth in a way that honors God, embodies faith, and ultimately demonstrates love for others. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that we've been learning these last nine weeks.
through James's letter. Father, he has taken us to so many practical, important, and necessary places related to living an authentic, credible faith in this world. And Father, today's topic, this topic about navigating the divide between those of us who have, and we all do, and that divide with those who have not, is no different, Father. It is necessary for us to hear. So I pray that we will think carefully today and the days ahead about the money you have given each of us, whether it's a great amount or a small amount, and how we need to steward it. Then I pray that you will help us to navigate this divide, that we will not just simply use our resources, our money to meet our own needs and our family's needs, but we'll also use it to fund your cause, your church, your mission in the world by meeting the needs of others, by meeting the needs of not only their physical needs, but their spiritual needs, their need to learn about Jesus. And we pray all that in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you, Pastor Jerry. As we talk about next steps, um, one of the things that James reminds us of, and Pastor Jerry has done a fantastic job of pointing out to us over these previous weeks, is that one of the primary ways God's, God works is through the human agency. We often pray for miracles, but God puts it on the heart of a brother or sister to often be the one who through that miracle comes. And as we look back quickly over the book of James, some of the ways James points this out to us is when he calls us to care for orphans and widows in their distress. He talks about the connection between faith and deeds. He talks about those who know the good they ought to do. And as Jerry pointed out to us today, the importance of understanding the haves and the have-nots. And as was pointed out to us, God has given us our wealth to do good. And so as we talk about next steps, um, I want to just remind us, I, I'm sure I don't really need to do any reminding, but about six weeks ago, something took place in Eastern Europe, and it set in motion a uh, course of events leading to a lot of destruction and hardship. And one of the results of that is now there are four million refugees from Ukraine uh, trying to find uh, safety and um, care in other nations. And so I want to, um, I believe we have a video that I'd like us to, to look at. This is uh, from Samaritan's Purse. This is Franklin Graham in Ukraine where Samaritan's Purse has an emergency field hospital and we're taking care of wounded we're taking care of the sick we're taking care of the elderly young whatever the case may be they come to us and we help them thank y'all for being here we go to where the fighting is and that's what we do and uh, these doctors and nurses are putting themselves in harm's way thank you all so that we can present the gospel of jesus christ to the hurting i think the need will be here for some time and uh, it may shift, it may change a little bit, and we'll just shift and change as, as we need to change. And you'll see some of our tents have been taken down and actually shipped just this morning out east. The wounded are gonna flow right out through there and we'll be there to take care of them. This is the, the train station. This is where people come from all over the country. And it's so much suffering, so much pain, so much sorrow has come to this train station. I want to try to help these people, love these people, but I want them to, I want to do it in the name of Jesus Christ. But Samaritan's Purse has a clinic here and we've got doctors and nurses. It's people come off the train, some are sick. We have a place where we take care of them and those that need to be hospitalized, we take them onto our emergency field hospital. It's important that I ask you to pray. Pray for our team for their safety. Pray that they'll be strong. Pray that God will protect us and keep us so that we can continue to preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to bind up the wounded and the hurting and do it all in his name. And so in light of what James teaches us, as we talk about next steps this week, we want to both encourage and challenge Peckway Church to give. Give to Samaritan's Purse and the ongoing work there. 
the, they've been on the ground since March 14th. And um, as hopefully was clear in the video, they have mobile hospitals, mobile medical clinics, and they're providing uh, for needs in, in other ways in uh, Ukraine right now. And this is a um, very tangible way for us to stand beside our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. And so two ways you can give, you can go to SamaritansPurse.org and give directly through Samaritan's Purse to the emergency needs in Ukraine, or you can um, give through Pequoy Church and just earmark it for uh, Ukraine, and we'll make sure that it gets to uh, Samaritan's Purse. And so that's our next step challenge and uh, encouragement this week. Let's uh, put into practice what James teaches us. And so with that, uh, I'm going to dismiss you. Go in the grace and love of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we'll see you next week.